you or someone you love have scoliosis? Are you wondering what's next? What is life going to be like from now on? Or is this even a big deal? Hi, my name is Dave Butler, and welcome to the Scoliosis Experience. We are here to talk with real people, both patients, parents, and providers, to bring hope and clarity to the road ahead. Thanks for joining us, and let's get started. On today's episode, I talked to Dr. Michael Steinhaus and Dr. James Brewster, who are from the Intermountain Spine Institute, about adult scoliosis deformity surgery and what they do and how, how they treat it. So they talk about some specific things, one being what their surgical techniques for scoliosis and spine problems are, what procedures that they do, but they also talk about their philosophy with spine surgery and only doing what's necessary to help increase function and increase uh, the quality of life for people. Uh, they talk about the best ways for a multidisciplinary approach with including other treatment modalities like physical therapy and chiropractic and acupuncture and things like that. They also talk about when to think about getting a second opinion. And the answer to that is that you should always get a second opinion, but it's interesting to hear them talk about that. They also talk about robot-assisted surgery, which is something that they do that not many surgeons in the area are doing. So I think this episode is a great a great one to listen to for anyone who is considering spine surgery or is worried about spine surgery or someone who is searching for a spine surgeon. These two surgeons have been fantastic to work with. The patients that I've seen that have worked with them and that have received surgery by them uh, rave about them. They, they love these guys and that's why I wanted to do a podcast episode with them because I have had such good reviews for my patients. Spine surgery is a highly debated topic among among patients of mine and among people that I talk to about spine problems, and I think they clear up a lot of a lot of the misconceptions about spine surgery. And to be honest, I think these two spine surgeons are different than a lot of the spine surgeons and surgeons in general that uh, that most people have interacted with. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a great episode, and here's Dr. Steinhaus and Dr. Brewster. All right, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm sitting here with Dr. Steinhaus and Dr. Brewster, who are amazing surgeons in the in the Salt Lake Valley, and I wanted to sit down with them and talk about adult scoliosis and what they do for it, and uh, what they what they have to offer for the patients that we see and the people that uh, listen to this podcast. So thank you for agreeing to to do this podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us early morning on a well, what is today Tuesday at 730 in the morning getting up before we see patients so I appreciate that a uh, little background on how I know these two I I had a patient that came into my office that was raving about her surgeons and most of the time I mean patients talk about their surgeons a lot but she was pretty much raving about you guys and I was like, I need to, I need to meet these guys because I'm always looking for good scoliosis and spinal deformity surgeons that I can refer to my patients, refer my patients to. And so we, I set up a, a meeting with you guys. You met with me. We chatted a little bit, and uh, the patients that I've seen since still rave about you. So I thought it would be good to, to see what all the hullabaloo is about, right? <laughs> the surgeries that I've seen from you guys are, are awesome, and 
uh, you've been a good support for us, and I appreciate that. So maybe introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, let's start with you, Dr. Steinhaus, and, and tell us about yourself. Um, so I'm Michael Steinhaus. I'm originally from um, the Midwest, from Kansas City, Missouri, um, where I grew up and did you know schooling and all that stuff. And then um, after high school, I went out to Boston. I went to Harvard for college, um, and then... Um, uh, down to New York City to Columbia for med school and then I've been in New York actually for all my training so I stayed there for my residency at um, Hospital for Special Surgery and then I stayed on for a year of fellowship where I really focused on kind of spine minimally invasive spine but also complex deformity as well so got kind of the full breadth of training in that regard and and um, and then and then came out here to, to start practice. Awesome. So how long have you been here in Utah now? Um, almost a year now. We came uh, last summer. Okay, cool. Yeah. Last summer, and you say so you experienced our winter, and are still experiencing our winter. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. Morning. The surprise, surprise yeah. snowstorms in April are still a surprise to me. So, right, used cool, to it. yeah, awesome, Dr. Brewster. Yeah, so James Brewster, I'm originally from here in uh, Sandy, Utah, is where I grew up. So, um, I went to Brighton High School there. If, for anyone in Utah, but anyway, go Bengals. And then I went to the University of Utah for undergraduate uh, degree, and then I went to Midwestern University, one of the osteopathic schools down in uh, Glendale, Arizona, kind of the greater Phoenix area. And then I went to Columbus, Ohio to Grant Medical Center in Ohio Health for my orthopedic surgery residency training, and then a fellowship at The Ohio State University, I had to say it correctly, so. Nice. Um, and then back out here, and we've been here the same the same amount of time as Dr. Steinhouse. So, okay, cool. So one one thing that I realize a lot of our our patients and the people listening to this may not totally understand what training you guys have to go through to be, uh, you know, a, a spine surgeon. So I don't know if you could just describe what that entails, kind of what your background is. Part of it is, you know, why you're experts in the field. Tell us about that a little bit. So it involves um, too many years of training is the is the answer, and my wife will be the first to t- to tell you that. Um, no, but so you do so you do the four years of college and then four years of med school, and after that you go to um, residency. So orthopedic surgery residency is five years. Um, so um, and then and then after that, uh, most people at this time have done a fellowship in spine, especially if they're doing spinal deformity. Um, it's a really good thing to have had um, you know a specific year of training in in spinal deformity. So that's an extra year on top of um, on top of residency. And so you'll see spine surgeons today that are either trained in orthopedic surgery or neurosurgery. And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, a fellowship trained spine surgeon, we all kind of, at this point, kind of do the same thing. So um, that's a slightly different path and their residency is two years longer, I think, than the orthopedic surgery path. But regardless, uh, a long long haul. That is a long road. Um, That's what makes you experts in the field because you, you have had that long road. So that's cool. So give us an idea what what made you interested in spine surgery and, and maybe specifically spinal deformity uh, surgery. Give us an idea about that. Maybe Dr. Brewster, let's have you go first. Yeah, so I think what made me interested in spine was, one, I feel like it's uh, spinal issues really inhibit patients significantly. And you can perform surgeries that really get patients to give them their life back essentially I mean you get them back up and moving you get neurologic compression that's now decompressed and they can start to function in a much better way and have a much better quality of life and so there's a big 
drastic difference and it felt very meaningful to me for whatever reason i think it was just because it was so impactful to patients as i saw it in addition i think the spine is an incredible part of the anatomical structure of the human body i mean it's very intricate there's a lot of balance that goes on there's a lot of uh, musculoskeletal anatomy that is involved with it and so the anatomy is just a very three-dimensional thing which kind of really drew me to it as well and understanding it which is part of it so well you must like it because you spent years of your life yeah, no, <laughs> um, Dr. Steinhouse, what about you? Sure, no, I, I totally agree with, with Dr. Brewster. I think um, the only thing I would add, part of what really made me interested in spine was I think um, the evolution of technology over the last few years has been enormous. You know, I think spine was actually a little bit slow to adopt new technology. Um, you know, being able to use kind of more minimally invasive techniques, even in a setting of, you know, doing scoliosis surgery, um, you know, and that's using uh, navigation and robotic technology to really make what we do more, you know, accurate and more perfect than we can, um, you know, with just using, um, you know, our own, our own hands. That really kind of drove me to the field. I thought it would really change over the next, um, you know, 15 to 30 years. So I think that's one thing. And then just to add to, to what Dr. Brewster said, you know, especially when thinking about patients specifically with scoliosis or deformity, those are some of the most, um, you know, functionally limiting diseases or pathologies that we see. You know, they've done studies looking at health-related quality of life, and it's up there with cancer with these really chronic conditions that you think of are, are terrible you know cancer HIV all, you know all these heart failure, yeah, heart yeah. failure all these like r- really limiting diseases are you know patients with scoliosis can have just as bad if not worse um, quality of life measures as compared to those patients and so when you know when we're thinking about surgery it really is to get patients you know from this really severely limiting um, situation to something where they can actually get back to enjoying their life so that's what was impactful for me well I think it's it's interesting because you think when you're talking about that uh, quality of life reduction with having scoliosis it's not something that most people generally think about I, I don't even think most well probably most spine surgeons recognize that but for the most part that's not communicated to to the patients that have it it's like oh you have scoliosis and it's like well yeah, it's affecting my life, yeah. but that's never really addressed. So I, I yeah. think that's that's really. No, no, I think a lot of times people think it's a cosmetic, you know, like largely a cosmetic yeah. thing, um, which is not, you know, just not what we see and not right. what the data shows. So, it's especially in the adult population too. I mean, that's where it's a lot more dis- disabling. Yeah, and that's the biggest complaint that my patients have. My adults with scoliosis. It's not. It's, sometimes it's that you know I have a. A hump on my back or something like that but most of the time it's you know I, I can't walk for longer than 10 minutes or something like that right. so so that's cool uh, so tell us what types of patients you like to work with like what's your your ideal type patient I, I think I mean we like to we like to see patients of all kind of walks you know in terms of age um, you know teenagers all the way up to to the elderly um, and then same thing you know whether you have a problem with your low back or your neck or your thoracic spine kind of the whole gamut I think for both of us probably what drew us to spine was the you know not everything is the exact same and and every patient is their you know is their own story and we really think about each patient as their own so what I like about it is that it's not just one you know doing one thing over and over and over again. It's seeing kind of a large variety of patients with different issues and thinking about each patient, you know, 
in their own right and kind of coming up with a formalized treatment plan. Yeah. I guess the answer, I mean, that's a hard question. The ideal patient would be the one that you could do the least amount for to get them to the best situation, I think. And that's kind of, both of our training is, one, emphasizing minimally invasive stuff, but sometimes there is the intent that you do have to do a little more than just what can be done minimally invasive. But we do still use minimally invasive techniques when we do bigger surgeries, such as scoliosis or deformity as well. But I think the ideal patient is one that's motivated to want to get better. And we try and have a long conversation with the patient that says that we set realistic goals, expectations, because going into a surgery for scoliosis is a huge deal and it takes a lot of time and effort for us and them being patient with us and understanding that it's going to be a journey. Right. And I think it's an interesting, interesting thought that you're trying to do the most benefit with the least amount of of disruption of the mm-hmm. body which mm-hmm. which is you know mo- most jobs they're trying to do the the most possible you guys are try- trying to do the most effect with the least amount of of your skills so uh, yeah that's an interesting interesting way to put it so what kind of procedures and surgeries do you guys do it, you talked about you know cervical spine thoracic lumbar it, just kind of give an, an idea of what those surgeries are that you guys specialize in and, and give us an idea of what you do. I guess we just start neck and go down neck. I mean, <laughs> it's we do cervical disc replacements. We'll do foraminotomies or just posterior isolated decompressions uh, just through a tubular retractor um, just for single nerve impingement. So we'll do also motion-sparing motion cervical laminoplasty, meaning we'll mm-hmm. dilate the cervical spinal canal so that... There's not as much pressure on the spinal cord for patients that have significant spinal cord compression. Uh, and then, obviously, anterior cervical discectomies and fusions, uh, and then posterior cervical fusions as well. Uh, thoracic spine, I mean, from just simple decompressions, laminectomies to corpectomies to osteotomies. Those are all big words, I guess we could say. <laughs> you know, we're going into a lot of things. And similar in the lumbar spine is the same stuff. Yeah. You mean you guys basically do anything spine-related is, is kind of yeah. kind of yeah. yeah, and I think we, we try to focus. I mean, the, the his, history of spine, I think, has in, involved a lot of fusion. Um, and obviously, there are certain cases, especially in the case of spinal deformity or scoliosis, where fusion really is, is necessary. Um, but where possible, I think we try to do, you know, again, kind of like Dr. Brewster was talking about, we have our philosophy of care, if you say that, is kind of like a minimally invasive or least invasive way to, to get somebody back to doing what they want to do. And oftentimes that's preserving motion, you know. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of what spine surgery in the past has been is fusion, you know, all the way up and down the spine. And, and so I think we're trying to think of ways to keep your motion by doing disc replacements um, and, and some decompression only without fusion surgeries to allow patients. Because I think a lot of times, you know, a lot of people think of spine as, night, you know, spine surgery is kind of a nightmare because they've heard these terror stories from friends or family, whatever, who, you know, spine surgery started and then it never stopped, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. that happens when people start getting fusions that maybe, maybe aren't, aren't so necessary. And I think the best way to tackle that is, is to allow people to keep their motion and not put stress on adjacent levels and, and all that stuff. So I think, you know, we really try to, where possible, obviously sometimes it's necessary, but a lot of times it's not. So I think we all have, we all know someone that's had a spine surgery that uh, all of my patients, you know, oh, I, you know, my grandpa had spine surgery and was never the same. And, and, and I think that point is, 
very appropriate. And it kind of goes along with what you were talking about before, where you said that spine surgery seems seem to be a little bit behind the times with technology and, and things like that. I think as that catches up, hopefully that's not the case anymore. Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. A lot of times people think of spinal deformity surgery as just fusion. And it, what are what are the other options that, say, someone with scoliosis has that's, you know, an older patient that has pain or is worried about it progressing, what options do they have as far as with you guys? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I, you know, we're, we're always proponents of people exhausting all non-operative options before surgery. Anytime you think any type of spine surgery, whether it's the smallest little thing you're doing or a big, you know, scoliosis correction is a surgery nonetheless. And so I think, we, you know, we try to avoid surgery at all costs and leave it kind of as a last um, option um, for people. But the, I think the other thing, like when you see a scoliosis on an x-ray, people immediately think, oh, I have to straighten that. I have to make them perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not necessarily the case. It's much more important to find out exactly, like, that's why we really take our time to go through the history and the physical exam and things like that to correlate what the pain or the problem this specific patient is having and how that's related to their specific case rather than, oh, we just look at an x-ray with a crooked spine and need to make it straight. So oftentimes people have one, you know, even if you have a scoliosis, you have one level of a problem or even a small little disc herniation or one little area that needs a decompression and you don't need a a big um, scoliosis correction. Um, So I think it's really kind of taking the time to think about where are your symptoms, how does that correlate to what we see on the exam, and how does that correlate to what we see on imaging, and is and, and kind of to our point before, what's the smallest intervention we can do to get you back to a functional life? Because oftentimes, um, and maybe even more than half the time, that's not, doesn't involve a big, long correction of a scoliosis and can, can involve a one or two level, you know, decompression even without, you know, doing a fusion hmm. or stabilization surgery. Yeah, some, sometimes it does require a big fusion, right. but ideally, most of the time, it doesn't. Does it? Yeah. yeah. And it's ideally almost like journey that we have with these patients. I mean, we sit down, we will talk about the scoliosis a little, but it's also kind of honing in on what are your symptoms, which oftentimes, as we're honing in those symptoms, that takes time. So it's we say we're trying a lot of these other non-operative modalities. We're trying physical therapy, plus minus chiropractic, plus minus, you know, water therapies, plus minus injections and medicinal treatments. And from that standpoint, that kind of helps us hone in on saying, and after having a discussion with patients, it's kind of saying, hey, I want you to think about what are your symptoms? Because oftentimes we don't see a patient that has scoliosis right off and we're saying, you need a big surgery right now. It's often a discussion first of saying, let's talk about this. Let's figure this out together. And it's creating a one, a relationship too, because it takes a lot of time to make sure we're deciphering and doing the right thing. Yeah. The only only other thing I thought that, you know, I might add is that, um, you know, physical therapy is such a huge part of this process, especially for patients with deformity. And I think we can get a lot of patients a lot better without surgery, you know, for patients who haven't you know, seeing a physical therapist. And the second point to that is physical therapy is not physical therapy is not physical therapy. It's not all the same, you know, (laughs) so especially for patients, the more complex your issue, the more specialized you need to make your therapy and your treatment. So there's a little bit of a plug for David and his group. But I think, you know, just anecdotally from what we've seen with patients, you know, going to someone who specializes in scoliosis 
treatment and therapy is so key because it's not, you know, you don't, uh, you know, go into somebody who's just seen a knee and an ankle and a whatever and, you know, who doesn't have the training in in deformity. It's very specific training, and I think patients do really well um, with those techniques. So I think, um, you know, seeing someone who's specialized in, in, in that type of treatment is really key to the process. And obviously, I'm not going to argue with you there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think, uh, like you were talking about, exhaust those conservative uh, treatments before doing something more invasive. I think we've all had those patients who are, are 70 years old and they have a you know a 65 degree curve and they don't have back pain and and it's like what's different between that person and someone who has a 20 degree curve that is constantly complaining about their their scoliosis caused back pain some of that could be weakness that's not doesn't need a fusion of that 20 degree curve you know those those types of things so i think i think that's great and i see so often that patients are told just wait until it's bad enough for surgery and and I I really I really don't like that answer because there's so many other things that can be done so I, I think you guys have a fantastic approach to that if someone is listening to this podcast and they're wondering if they're a good candidate to come see you guys what uh, what would determine whether they're a good candidate to see you who who are those patients that you would want to see I think Honestly, any patient. We're happy to sit down and talk with anyone about it and go through kind of our full workup and that sort of stuff, which includes really kind of looking at their quality of life, looking at their health, what's their past medical history, looking at bone quality and where their bone quality is at. Because before doing a surgery like this, we make sure their bone quality is up to speed. They've been on vitamin D, calcium. Sometimes they have to get on medications for increasing their uh, bone quality so that we can actually proceed with a you know deformity correction or scoliosis correction if we have that case. I think that's a lot of how we approach it is sitting down and having a conversation and it's having kind of kind of talking from A to Z management and that's what this is is expectant management it's saying hey you may not be to the point that you need a surgery at this point but we may get there and this is when we're going to get there so and the things that really push our hands to more getting to a point to surgery it's kind of that tipping scale is it to the point where it's affecting their life every single day have they exhausted non-operative measures do they have neurologic compression that's maybe pushing our hand to get stuff going a little sooner so are they having weakness in their legs or are they having worsening neuropathies or uh, just from compression of the nerves so that's kind of our main approach I think well I mean it sounds like those who have spine problems could come in and get a consultation with you and and figure out if they're the right fit for for what you guys do absolutely um, yeah from anything from a you know a, a disc herniation that they're looking at to a, a big scoliosis fusion with neurological compromise. So that's great. We kind of already talked about this a little bit, but what, what other treatments do you suggest for your patients? I, I heard you guys mention physical therapy. I heard uh, injections, medications. Like what, what's kind of your, your algorithm to figure out where patients go for treatment or, or what, they, what they need? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, we, t we touched on that um, a little bit. I think, um, you know, 
kind of like we've been mentioning, especially if you have scoliosis and the treatment, you know, the surgical treatment for that often ends up being a relatively large endeavor. So as we talked about before, this ends up being kind of a journey. And I think a lot of patients, as we mentioned, can get better, um, you know, before surgery with all those, you know, kind of non-operative things that we talked about, including um, uh, really focusing on therapy and building up your core strength and your paraspinal muscles and endurance and all these things that may be for so long have, have, um, you know, deteriorated because of pain and because of um, inability to, to, to get up and move around. I think, um, you know, that's why I think focused physical therapy is really good. If there are certain um, little areas that we can identify that would be good for targeted injections, that's always very helpful. And sometimes those injections can last for months and months and, and really get people to a place where they can actually participate in therapy better. So they all work, I think, in concert. It's not just, you know, siloed treatments where, okay, I tried physical therapy for six weeks, that didn't work, so then I'm going to go try injections. I think they kind of work together. So um, I think putting all these things together uh, can really make somebody better. Um, and, and it's a journey. It's not, you know, it's not like, you know, in the first week we'll see results and then that's it. It's, you know, you, you may for, for a year kind of wax and wane and, and start to get better and then maybe start to get a little bit worse as the scoliosis progresses. So I think just getting plugged into a system is, is key. Well, and I think it's interesting you're talking about not doing silo, siloed treatments because I hear that all the time. Oh, I've tried physical therapy. Michael, like, well, what did you do? What, you know, what, what did you do in therapy? Or I tried injections, but it just came back. I'm like, well, what did you do while the pain was gone? You know, things like that. So I, I like the idea of kind of a, a complementary approach with those, those different treatments. Uh, Dr. Brewster, any thoughts on I guess the only thing I'd add is I think as a patient that's going through the process of this, I think you have to kind of step back and say, all right, I'm going to be in the driver's seat of this. And you, you can't be too passive about your care because you may, uh, I mean, hopefully you get to the good specialist that really understands what's going on so they can really jump into it. But if you're going to the physical therapist, you got to say, I need you to teach me a home exercise plan. I need you to show me what I need to be doing of how, what proper lifting mechanics, how can I help prevent further progression? And it's asking kind of some of these questions to those that are treating you, what else you can do. Um, in addition, it's trying all the modalities. Like I think what Dr. Steinhaus was saying, it's not just therapy, it's, you know, ultrasound, it's e-stim, it's acupuncture, it's all these things. And, you know, some patients, it's interesting. I, I've, I've never been able to hunt percent figure out what's going to work best for every patient but some patients they come back and say hey I did dry needling and that was like the best thing for me it gave me like a month of relief or I had some I went to pain management I had a few injections and had some nerve ablations and that helped me significantly for a long long time and so I think it's what you were saying is it's a synergistic response and kind of going out there and figuring out like you guys touched on before that actually tells you things too um, as far as what your recommendations are to these patients. If injections help, that tells you something. If physical therapy helps, it tells you something. It tells you that uh, you know something is, is helpful in structure of the spine, what that, what that is like. So that's great. What suggestions do you guys have for, let's say someone was just diagnosed with adult scoliosis, whether that's you know, adolescent that has progressed or degenerative scoliosis or uh, other spinal deformities, maybe kyphosis or whatever. What, what are your suggestions for that person? I think approaching 
So if you were just diagnosed with scoliosis, I think it's kind of stepping back and saying, all right, talking to the specialist and figuring out, hey, is this more urgent or is this more something we can monitor and start to manage? that sort of thing. And that's really determined whether or not if you have neurologic compression and weakness that may push our hand to say, hey, we probably should do something sooner. If not, I think it's kind of saying, all right, I've got something, now I need to manage this. And this isn't something that will just necessarily 100% go away throughout my life. I'm going to have to manage my symptoms and these issues throughout my life. Yeah, I agree. No, I think I think there's kind of this negative connotation with spinal deformity and scoliosis. And if you get diagnosed, I think people it, it can be kind of it can feel kind of like a very negative thing. And I would so my first inclination would be to say take you know stop and take a deep breath. This is not the end of the, the end of the world. A lot of people have scoliosis, and a lot of people live very happy, healthy, functional lives doing what they want to do with scoliosis. And we have great ways to, to manage it. But but I think to Dr. Brewster's point that, you know, knowing that you have it, it almost becomes now a responsibility for, okay, you know, this is something we want to actively manage. And the best way to do it is get, get on it early and often. You know, I think even if you're not incredibly symptomatic and you're diagnosed with scoliosis, it makes sense to meet with a therapist or somebody who could show you exercises you know because we know that you know if you strengthen your paraspinals and 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 maintain your endurance that's going to limit the progression of this um of this condition which can progress so i think it's a it's you know it's good to know early and it's good to kind of be on it early yeah and and stay on it don't put it in the background and oh i have scoliosis what have you done about that well nothing Right. So, yeah, t- take control, kind of like what Dr. Brewster was talking about as well, not being passive, being a little more an active participant in your mm-hmm. in your care, because not everyone will have access to a therapist that is specialized or a surgeon who, you know, knows as much about that as you guys. So I think being an active participant, I mean, that's huge in any aspect of, of health care, right? Um, so maybe one question that I, I just thought of, uh, when when would it be a good idea for patients who are listening to this podcast um, to get a second opinion? Like let's say they get an opinion from one of your colleagues or a, another spine surgeon. Um, at what point would you recommend that they get a second opinion? Always. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, uh, any time. Or I, it doesn't yeah. hurt our feelings whatsoever. No, I think yeah. it's good to get many minds on these issues. I think particularly if surgery is on the table, I, I, I would say to myself or any family member that I have or any patient that I see, if you're going to have a spine surgery, I would always get a second opinion. And just like Dr. Brewster said, you know, if we're giving the first opinion, no, we're never offended if people go and get a second opinion because this is about the patient and how they're going to do. And you want as many people to agree on the right treatment as possible. Um, so I would say always, always. <laughs> 100% yeah. of the time. <laughs> always get a second opinion. And and recently I had a patient that I sent over for you guys to do a, a, a second opinion for and she she was very impressed with what you guys had to say, and I think it helped her to um, come to a realization of what she needed to do. You know, getting more opinions, then you can make a better decision. Um, to a point, you know, you probably don't need a tenth opinion. Maybe you do, but you know, um, but yeah. a second opinion I think is is a great great thing. 
And, you know, this is, interestingly, you know, getting a second opinion from another surgeon. As surgeons, we get second opinions, too. So when it comes to these cases, you know, this is like if I see a patient that has scoliosis deformity, I sit down, I go through what I'm thinking and what I'm doing, and oftentimes I sit down after and I say, hey, Dr. Steinhaus, I saw a patient today. This is a case that I looked at. What do you think? Does this make sense? This is what I saw. And oftentimes we have a lot of conversations, even if it's deformity patients to minimally invasive patients, we often have two minds on a lot of these cases going in that we're kind of convinced one way or the other that push us one way or the other. So it's nice to have each other's support. One is a group here, but also just kind of coming up with plans for patients. Right. One last thing, just um, one last question that I had. Tell us about the robot-assisted surgery that you do. That's kind of uh, I, I don't know how many are doing that in the area as far as spine surgery with robot assistance, um, but tell us about that. Tell us about how that, that works, the benefits of it, and stuff like that. Yeah, so, the, I mean, it's, you know, the robot is, is really great. It's a, um, a nice way, you know, that technology has evolved to make us feel that we're doing safer and more accurate surgery. Um, what it does is it takes um, images of the patient, we get preoperative imaging of the patient, and then we kind of correlate it with how the patient is in the operating room, and the robot registers all of the anatomy, so it knows exactly where everything is. So it, you know, it's not like a driverless car where we're not, you know, where we're looking at a newspaper and the driver, the car is driving and, <laughs> and, and that we're there participating in surgery. It just acts as a second check and, um, and, um, and helps us be much more accurate. So the data shows with this kind of uh, navigation and robotic assisted technology that we have much more accurate placement of all of our hardware, um, fewer revisions, fewer times where you have to take out hardware and put it back in, which is just the, you know, the first time going in is the best time to get it right, in my opinion. And so, you know, if we can, you know, anyone who's had multiple spine surgeries would tell you it'd be nice to just do one. So, so that's what's really nice about it. And it, it, it takes some stress off of our lives, honestly, because it's a, it's a really great second check. And we're not just relying on our, you know, our, our knowledge of, of basic anatomy. We're, at, we're augmenting that knowledge with some really good technology. So I think it's yeah, been really great. helpful. Does it reduce complications during surgery? Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. you know, when we're playing, especially in a scoliosis surgery where we're trying to do correction, um, you know, we're putting screws into the pedicles of the spine. And sometimes in a really rotated spine, those pedicles aren't so easy to find or they're small or they're deformed. Um, and that's when it's really helpful because if, you know, if we're re- relying just on our own, you know, hands and human error, and there are times when, when things are put in not exactly, you know, a couple millimeters off and their nerves are there, spinal cord is around there. And so it's, you know, it definitely cuts down on complications with regard to that. Yeah, the more accurate you can be, I assume, the, the better. Absolutely. 100%. Cool. Um, so any, any other suggestions that you guys have for those that might be listening to this podcast? Any, anything that you feel like this type of patient would benefit from understanding better or hearing or anything like that? No, I think we touched on those points. I think, you know, in cases of spinal deformity and scoliosis, it's kind of a team approach. It's not just a single person that should kind of be a part of your care. It's a team, such as kind of how we've aligned with uh, your group about with working with the therapists, working with the pain management team, it's working with the surgeons, and it's kind of coordinating care to help make sure that we get the right stuff done at the right time. So mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing is team approach, positive attitude, 
hopeful to kind of get in the right direction. I would also add, just don't hesitate to reach out and see somebody. You know, I think if people people worry that if they're going to go see a, someone who specializes in spine surgery, that they're going to you know, they're committed to having a spine surgery, and that's not really the truth. I think it's nice to meet with someone who knows, um, you know, the natural history of these things and can talk you through the non-operative and operative side of things. Even for someone who's not ready for surgery yet, I think it's a fine thing. So, I, I, in the, in the mind of being proactive about. Um, you know, what's going on with your body. I think it's always good to, to meet with someone if you have any questions. So, so no time is too early to, to reach out and, and get an opinion. And I think one last thing would be is that I know sometimes when you think spine surgery and big surgery, it, it's a scary thing. And, and that's why we try and take our time with you or with these patients to really explain, hey, this is what can be expected after surgery, how we're going to manage your pain, how we're going to manage your outcomes. And this is how we have step A to Z for plans of how we can manage all these common issues that come up with these things. And so it's helpful to sit down and talk about them. That takes some of the, the unknown out of the equation, definitely. So yeah, I think the bottom line is don't hesitate to come in and talk to you guys. You guys have been, been great to work with. So if someone wants to come in and, and talk to you, get a consultation, um, what's the best way for them to do that? They can call, you know, call our office. So that, you know, our, our office number is 801-314-BACK or 2225. Okay. Um, so that's one thing. Um, we're in the process of kind of revamping our website. They can find us on the web if they Google our names at the mm -hmm. moment. Um, and then I think referral from um, you know therapist from your primary care or even just calling directly the office I think is a fine way. I, I think that was great. I think it really helps patients and those listening to know where to go for help. Like you talked about a lot, the multidisciplinary approach uh, to to back pain, scoliosis, and spine surgery I think is awesome. So I really appreciate you guys doing this with me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, appreciate thank it. you. Really Thanks appreciate it. Time.